I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. As soon as we were like, oh, I maybe want to major in this, she said, okay, well, the first thing you have to know is there are Iliad people and Odyssey people, and you have to pick one. <laughs> there aren't Aeneid people. <laughs> Fuck no! <laughs> everyone, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. I'm Emily, a classic scholar person. And it's The Last Olympian Time. <laughs> I have not reread this book, I think, since it came out. I actually didn't remember a lot of it either, because it's been probably six years since I read it. Yeah, I think, well, I had a thing for a while, which is really funny if you know, like, the stuff I tend to write, because I do enjoy writing tragedy, but I have a thing about major character death. I, I couldn't handle it, which is hilarious, because me now is like, kill them all, make it hurt, twist the knife. <laughs> but, like, it's only okay when I do it. So it's exactly the same <laughs> as when you were a kid. Yeah, so this was a, a fun one. But before we get into it, this is your last chance. If you want to participate in our series wrap up, this episode is going up on a Tuesday, March 7th. So by Thursday, March 9th, get those questions or comments in. Even if those like thoughts that you have are just like what your bead would have been for each of the books, like would yeah. love to hear that too. Anything and everything. We've gotten a couple cool questions that I'm very excited to talk about. Yes. Very exciting. Are we ready to get into the last Olympian? Yes. <laughs> okay. So we open 
when it has been almost exactly a year since the end of the Battle of the Labyrinth. And he's hanging out with Rachel in Paul's Prius. We also open what I thought was kind of interesting on Rachel basically offering for Percy to go with her family for three days to basically escape everything. And and Percy kind of refers to hanging out with Rachel as an escape later in the same chapter as well, where he says, like, the more serious things get at camp, the more I feel the need to call Rachel. And I felt like that opening on that offer really reminded me of Calypso. Hmm. Because it's, again, like, this other possible maybe, maybe love interest of Percy's coming in and giving him an escape from all of his suffering. And he's, like, kind of having to repeat that choice almost. That makes sense to me. Because what she's trying to offer Percy is an escape where he gets to be, like, a normal person. Like, she says to him, let's pretend we're a couple of normal people, we're out for a drive, and we're watching the ocean, and it's nice to be together. Just having the moment to... Disconnect. Yeah, disconnect, but experience, like, a false tranquility... Because it isn't actually peace. Like, there is still that danger sitting just beyond wherever they are. It's also interesting because it, like, made me wonder, like, what would happen if he took her up on it? It might have ended up playing out the same way, though, because it might have ended with Rachel, like, having a vision and then being like, we gotta oh, get yeah, back and being to like, Manhattan. Oh, yeah, being like, we have to get back. Yeah. Okay, but Beckendorf shows up. Wait, Beckendorf shows up just like his face has showed up on Calypso's Island. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I... I literally had that thought and completely <laughs> forgot about it until you just said it. <laughs> and breaks through the, breaks the piece. This, this entire thing is really just, you know, Calypso light, basically. So Beckendorf shows up and he and Percy uh, head off to execute their stealth mission. I've always thought naming your ship the Princess Andromeda was an interesting choice. <laughs> Because she is, like, very much an archetypical damsel in distress who Perseus saves in mythology. Yeah. I wonder if it was Luke who named it that, which, like, he's insane if he did that. Or if it was his benefactors who he mentions in Sea of Monsters. (laughs) I don't know. But if it's that, we're going to have to wait a while to talk about it. And something else that I thought was really interesting about this chapter is when he finally does get caught by Luke because it turns out there's a spy. So they knew that both Percy and Beckendorf were coming. Mm -hmm. He starts by referring to him as Luke. Yeah. And by the end of this chapter is Kronos. Solely Kronos. There's no slip-ups anymore. And we also, in this scene, get our first, well, our second technically Kronos-Luke glitch where Kronos' voice at first comes out as Luke's voice Mm -hmm. when he says... You're late, Percy. We've been expecting you for days. That's Luke's voice. And then after that, it switches into Kronos' voice, which we'll get plenty of those. And I have a lot of thoughts on those. Yeah. That being said, I do think in this encounter, the line that stood out to me the most was not Luke speaking through Kronos, but Kronos speaking through Luke, which is when he says, you can't count on friends. They will always let you down. Luke learned that lesson the hard way. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting thing, this idea that, like, the friends are letting Luke down as opposed to Luke letting his friends down, which is very much like Percy's narrative of this whole story is, like, Luke, his friend, constantly letting everybody down. Mm -hmm. But from Luke's perspective, it's like, I told Percy to join my side multiple times. He wouldn't. I Annabeth over and over. I asked Thalia to help me. She wouldn't. I wouldn't even use the word asked. I would use the word begged. He begged. Yeah. And it's after that that we also get that line where... Percy makes the mistake of looking at Luke's face and so, like, misses while he's trying to fight him. And he says that because he looked at him, it throws him off because that was once his friend. And as much as he hates him now, it's hard to kill him. 
And I just, starting this book off with Percy having that thought when he probably hasn't thought about Luke as being his friend in years. Yeah. Just the fact that they're both, like, if this thought that's coming from Kronos is a thought that's coming from Luke, that he feels like he was abandoned by his friends, and then Percy is kind of having that same yeah. thought looking at Luke, it really sets up that that dynamic for the rest of the book. Yeah. And then, basically, since they've been caught, but the bombs have been planted, but there's no delay on the timer, Beckendorf makes the decision to sacrifice himself in order for Percy to escape and to blow up the ship. The fact that in this first chapter, we go from, like, Rachel and Percy in the car to the first death of the war in the opening pages, (laughs) it's just, like, immediately throwing you into what this book is about to be. Like, it wastes no time setting up how high the stakes are and, like, ripping any kind of sense of security out from under you. It's like, it felt like you go to, like, do a little hop, but it turns out you jumped on a springboard. (laughs) That's never happened to me, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, or it's like, or maybe it's like you're on a trampoline and you're like, yeah, I know how this goes, and then someone double bounces you and you're like, ah! Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Percy wakes up recovering from the pretty hefty explosion in Poseidon's realm. So he's actually there for the first time. Poseidon's realm is like in a rough spot. The palace itself is basically like being shelled. There's all of these like horrible monsters in the deep coming at him. And he's been like separated from the gods into his own realm. And he's like stuck appearing as like a frail old man, which really shocks Percy. And Poseidon basically says that his appearance reflects the state of his realm. There's also this other really interesting line where Percy, you know, he wants to stay and fight and help Poseidon and Poseidon kind of sends him on his way. And he says, like, what if staying here is like the decision and the prophecy, which I thought was really interesting because I think it really illustrates how vague the prophecy is and how you can really interpret those lines to really to justify any of your actions. Yeah. And like it also creates all of this uncertainty of how will I know when this decision what this decision is it also like the way that i interpret a lot of these prophecies is that no matter what choice you made something that fits the prophecy would have happened so like we know back when thalia was the child of the prophecy we saw her prophecy set itself up like her version of this prophecy Mm -hmm. set itself up Mm. with the ophiotaurus and mount othris and her having to make that choice and having to face luke and like it all set itself up perfectly so that her version of the prophecy could happen so it's like if you decided to stay there would have been some other strange version like an alternate version of the prophecy that played out in my head (laughs) that is really interesting you're right yeah so then um percy gets back to camp and everyone's really excited to see him until he has to tell them that beckendorf didn't make it back with him and he's really really uncomfortable with like having to be the messenger here yeah, I don't even know if he says it outright, does he? I feel like he just gives people meaningful looks and they're like, oh no. <laughs> but then he goes to uh, like a, basically a war council meeting. And this is where we get the first direct parallel to the Iliad that I noticed on my first read through. They all gathered in a council and immediately there is this argument between Clarice and the Ares kids in the Apollo cabin over some loot that they took like a flying chariot during some battle and Clarice is so angry she doesn't even like want to come to the war council at all she's just there to support Selena and it's just like this incredibly petty squabble 
that Percy is like, I don't even understand how you can be arguing about this. Like, who cares about this stupid chariot? Interestingly, this is how the Iliad starts. Basically, Achilles being angry because Agamemnon, the king of the Greeks and the leader, Menelaus' brother, basically ordered him to give up some of his loot from Raid, the loot being a woman he has captured named Perseus. Basically, a priest of Apollo named Chryses shows up in the Greek camp um, and says, you need to give me my daughter back that you captured, otherwise I'll call a curse down upon you. And he basically gives a terrible prophecy of a curse. And at first they refuse to give up their captives because giving up loot is the equivalent of giving up glory. So Apollo curses them. This is a long-winded explanation, but I'm bringing all of this up because here we actually get a lot of the same beats. We get a conflict involving Apollo and an argument over loot from a fight between the commanding officer versus the person who actually captured it. And also, you know, right after that as well, Percy finally gets to hear this prophecy, which kind of mirrors how Pisces comes down and basically says, if you don't do this, I'm going to call the wrath of the gods upon you and kind of prophesizes in that way because he's a priest of apollo also so Mm -hmm. prophecy so percy hears uh the great prophecy and there are two things that i noted during this scene one was how gentle annabeth was being with percy because she knew what was coming and Mm. she's just very like patient with him throughout this entire scene and just making sure that he's okay the whole time and i just really liked that (laughs) And I feel like this is a moment that she's kind of been dreading, but also preparing herself for for a long time, is Percy hearing this prophecy. And I don't think he gives the reaction that she was expecting, which is he immediately is like, Mm. I can't think about that right now. I need to think about something other than the fact that I just heard a prophecy saying I was going to die in a week. But I don't believe that he stays in this mode because this chapter ends with the war council adjourning. And then the next chapter starts with him dreaming. And I was like, and? I know you went back to your cabin and cried about it. I just know it. <laughs> you tried to skip over it, but I know what happened. What is um the actual prophecy? Do you have the text of the prophecy? Uh, of course. I have it memorized. I don't even have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a half load of the eldest gods shall reach 16 against all odds and see the world in endless sleep. The hero's soul, cursed blade shall reap. A single choice shall end his days. Olympus to preserve or raise. So yeah, then Percy dreams of Rachel. Right. And she's got that iconic paragraph. (laughs) The picture she was attacking was a painting of me standing over the giant Antaeus. Rachel had painted it a couple of months ago. My expression in the picture was fierce, disturbing even, so it was hard to tell if I was the good guy or the bad guy. But Rachel said I'd looked just like that after the battle. Um, I enjoyed the idea of Percy having to perceive himself in that way. It does make me think about like all of those moments where his brain kind of shuts off and he just goes into like there's a bunch of them in this book too. Yeah. Where if you take a step back and you imagine yourself like being the spectator as opposed to Percy, you would be scared of Percy. Mm-hmm. And I like that she's completely captured that moment in a way that he has to like look at it, like you said, where he has to like stare himself down. Yeah. And it's a good setting up that are you the good guy or the bad guy here kind of moment because Percy's going to have to confront what side he's on in this book. So Percy wakes up and after breakfast spends the morning going through reports for Chiron while walking around camp with Annabeth who is uh, inspecting the cabins. And then we get Nico who is now 12 years old which I thought was fun. Yeah. Nico shows up 
so that they can follow through on the plan that he suggested to Percy at the end of Battle of the Labyrinth, which he tells Percy will grant him the same invincible power Kronos has in Luke's body right now. And we don't know what that is yet, but we do know that in order to start the process, they first have to go confirm something by visiting Luke's mom. And Nico says Luke's mom lives in Westport, Connecticut. <laughs> um, and so that's where they have to go next. So when you first read this When movie, I read this line for the first time in 2009, <laughs> I lost my mind. <laughs> I literally, Sophia was reading, my sister was reading the, I, I think she was on the third or fourth book across the room from me. And I was on the fifth book. Mm-hmm. I read the line and like jumped up and immediately went and spoiled the book for her. <laughs> I was like, Sophia, you gotta check this out. <laughs> because that's our hometown. Um, Emily and I are, are both from the same town Luke grew up in. Yes. Here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay? The reason why Luke is from Westport, Connecticut. <laughs> so for some backstory here. Westport, Connecticut, you might be thinking to yourself, why did Rick pick this place out of all of the possible places for Luke to be from? And the answer is, I, I think, I mean, I, again, I don't know, Rick. So I, I don't know if this is actually true. No, this is true. But <laughs> when we were in middle school, they would have this big literary festival for kids books every few years or so. And they happened to get a bunch of really big authors, kids authors, children's books authors at the time to come and give talks in all the schools, one of whom was Rick Riordan but they also got like Neil Schusterman Gil Carson Levine like there are so many people it was was like I don't know how they got all these people there's like five of them and we all got to sign up to go hear them talk and Rick Riordan's talk was so big they had to put him in the auditorium (laughs) Phoebe and I by the way our Westport Connecticut has two middle schools I went to one Phoebe went to the other so I cannot speak to at our school Rick's was also in the auditorium, but I did not sign up for Rick's talk because my favorite author (laughs) was there, Neil (laughs) Schusterman. Like, I remember they were like, okay, everyone put down your top three choices for which author you want to see. And everyone just like put down Rick as your number one. And if you get it, you get it. And so everyone's like, okay, Rick, number one. And I was like, Neil Schusterman, number one. Rick, uh, number two, I guess. (laughs) So I was at Neil Schusterman's talk. For the record, I don't regret that. <laughs> Neil Schusterman was great. I do regret. I do regret actually being in Rick's. Um, but yeah, Rick came to our schools, and at the time, Battle of the Labyrinth was going to come out. Which me knowing now what I know about publishing schedules means he was actively probably working on the Last Olympian when he came to visit. And he went to Westport, Connecticut, and thought to himself, "Yes, Villador. This is where my villains." <laughs> these fucking kids so rick gave a talk about the book and then at the end a few people like went up to him after the presentation and he would talk to them and whatever and one of them was a friend of mine and i went up to my friend and i was like what'd you ask rick and my friend goes oh i saw online that there was an error in the lightning thief and i asked him if he knew about it. <laughs> a very minor typo basically hmm and the next day, there was a different event that was part of the same festival, but that wasn't like part of the schools. I think this was all on a Friday and this was like on a Saturday. So anyway, I go up to him at the end, like my friend did. And I'm like, did you know there was an error? <laughs> <laughs> and I like to think that was the moment he decided. He was immediately like, no. Like, 
Anyway, because we both grew up in the same town Luke grew up in, I think we yeah. have a unique perspective on Luke's tragic backstory. I mean, it probably means something different to us than it does to most people reading it. And it has such an impact on the way that I read Luke also. Like, I think it's so essential to his backstory and to understanding how he ended up like this. And so I'd like to deep dive right now. Mm -hmm. So for context, Westport is a town in Connecticut. It's about an hour outside New York City. And it's pretty much exactly how Percy describes it here, <laughs> which is lots of trees, low stone walls, and big houses. Yeah, it is definitely a privileged community. Yeah. And I think that's also, besides the fact that he met you, a big part of the reason <laughs> that Rick chose it for Luke's backstory, because I think he clocked it, just like Percy does in this chapter, as being the complete opposite of the environment that Percy grew up in. Yeah. Because a good amount of Westport is like affluent suburbia. He probably, at some point, thought to himself that like even if these kids can relate to Percy for other reasons, they have a totally different mm -hmm. experience of the world than he does for more reason than not like being a demigod <laughs> they're gonna come at the world with like a completely different worldview and i honestly don't think he could have picked a better place for luke to be from because the worldview that kids do come out of this town with is just so luke <laughs> explain yeah <laughs> westport is a town that's very focused on success like academic success and financial success and even at nine years old you are aware of that as a child. This is something that people pass on to their kids. And by the time Luke would have run away, that has been a part of the way that he's been interacting with kids his age for years that need to succeed in life and to like become something to write home about. It's not just a piece of Luke's individual wants like we've talked about. It's also a symptom of the town that he grew up in that he probably bought into. Mm. And I think another piece of this that it's uh, a unique one because this mm -hmm. aspect of growing up in, in Westport is going to totally change in the context of the Disney Plus show. If this show takes place in the pleasant, present day, Westport was 92% white when Luke was growing up. When we were growing up, it was 95% white. I looked this up <laughs> for this episode because depending on how you interpret Luke, it means drastically different things <laughs> because in the books, Luke is described as this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale-as-a-sheet-of-paper kid by the end of the series. But in the show, Luke is being played by Charlie Bushnell, who's a mixed Japanese-Latino-Irish kid. And that, especially not just being a child of color, but being a mixed kid in Westport, Connecticut, is a very specific experience. And Luke and I are about to be cousins. <laughs> We're both mixed-race Irish-Latino kids from Westport now, and I have so much to say about that. <laughs> Specifically being, like, that brand of mixed in Westport, there are only three people I know of from Westport who can speak to that experience, and they're me, my sister, and my brother. <laughs> I don't know what context I'll bring that up in, but... Well, I'm interested if you have thoughts on that, because I would be interested in Oh, you're gonna hear them, but, like, I don't know if it'll come up in season one of the show. It feels like a season three, four, five kind of thing. But I'm like dying yeah. to talk about it. <laughs> Specifically for Luke, who we've talked about as someone who's trying to find community with other people and failing. Like that alone. Yeah. And like his mom's not like signing him up for activities or setting him on play dates, I'm assuming. Like it would probably be really hard for him to even leave the, ho the house besides going to school. Yeah. I always imagine him actually 
not being at home much like being one of those kids that's like on his bike all the time and you're like do you go home like they're always out in your neighborhood or like on the beach playing alone oh westport is a beach town by the way (laughs) um it's on long island sound and you know going to the beach growing up in westport when you look across the water you can see long island really clearly on a good day like you can see it every day but on a good day you can see all of the buildings over there it's pretty close and so i'm always thinking about luke runs away spends years on the run ends up being led to camp half flood on the north shore of long island and then looks across the water and sees connecticut staring back at him like all that running and he he's staring back at right where he started and it's just he's reminded of that every single time he looks across the sound but anyway if you interpret luke as a white kid from westport it has a totally different meaning like it's a totally different thing (laughs) that i can't speak to but the way i've always thought of it is that this is a kid who by all means should have it all like he should have it made (laughs) because he's a Mm. white kid coming from a well-off home in a town known for how good its public schools are like it all should have come so naturally but he has none of the advantages that he should be afforded and probably feels robbed of the lifestyle that every other kid around him is living because it's a a lifestyle that seems like it was set up for him and i think that's like all the more reason to personally blame your father because that's the odd factor out like that's he is the reason (laughs) that he's not living the life that you were supposed to be living here where it gets a little complicated is when i try to apply this to luke's views on western civilization (laughs) maybe it's he grew up in a sort of american dream kind of town looking like what the american hero is expected to look like and maybe because the society that was supposed to be lifting him up is like leaving him in the dust it opens his eyes to the flaws that are there i think that's definitely part of it okay the actual we didn't even talk about the actual okay let's get into the actual scene percy and nico go to luke's house they meet luke's mom it's originally jarring i think because she goes up and she thinks that percy is luke and then she turns to nico and thinks nico is luke when percy is like still there in the room like she seems kind of like frozen in time in a way and also very preoccupied with luke but simultaneously has not realized how much time has passed since he left and i think kind of gives the impression that like all she sees is him yeah like she's stuck in this loop of like a vision basically Mm mm-hmm and has been for a really long time. And she also, you know, she keeps all of these little beanie babies of different mythological figures and has decorated her house with images of Hermes, which made me think mm-hmm. of Herms, like you mentioned in our, yeah. was it our Luke's Diary episode? Yeah. Um, like to ward, off, ward off evil. evil. Yeah. And I was thinking like, because she's living her life knowing evil lives in her house, it's coming for her son. So she fills her house with, like, modern-day Herms, ads that have Hermes on them and little memorabilia. And there's an interesting line as well where she mentions that Luke told her he was going to go away so the monsters won't bother her. But I wonder if maybe it's not the monsters themselves. Like, what if maybe he thinks that she'll get better if he's gone because then she won't be confronted with these horrible visions that clearly involve him. Because it becomes very clear that it's not just the gift of prophecy, arbitrarily, that is the reason why she seems to be stuck like this. And she occasionally like has these like fits where it's just like way worse, where she seems like 
it's like traumatic for her. And it seems like it's specifically a, one vision that haunts her, which is Luke's fate. Yeah. And so I wonder if to Luke, like him leaving might be the solution to her. You know, maybe if he leaves and she doesn't see him every day, like maybe it'll help. Right. She won't have to keep giving that prophecy to him over and over. But as, yeah, as we see, if that was his goal, he did not succeed. So her name is May. <laughs> I don't think we mentioned. May says that Luke came to visit her recently, like with his scar, modern, modern day Luke, mm -hmm. and asked for her blessing. Which confirms for Nico that in order to enact his plan, Percy will need to get his mother's blessing. And so they leave her house and go into the woods in Luke's backyard where they find Hestia. And getting Hestia immediately after Luke's home and like Hestia presenting them with a home-cooked meal and all that warmth. It, the fact that at the beginning of the chapter, Percy described the house as being so nice that he couldn't imagine living in it with its yard and its size mm -hmm. and that a house like that can exist and a fire in the middle of the woods is more of a home than that like you can feel immediately why luke ran away she tells him the hardest power to wield is to yield basically to step aside yes i have that quote written down too I think that's honestly one of a couple thesis statements that this book has. And a lot of those thesis statements are actually in this chapter. Yeah, that is something that we've been seeing building in this series as well. Like we keep talking about like who the main character is and like agency. And it's actually something that we talked about most recently in The Bronze Dragon where, you know, Annabeth remarks that Percy's bravest moment is when he distracts a monster so that another hero can defeat it. And it's like this idea that to be great, you don't necessarily have to do the great deed. Like sometimes the best possible action and course is to stand aside or to not act. It's very counter to like what we of the West think of as like what a great deed is, um, because serving the greater good is not necessarily something we value. If serving the greater good involves you becoming a piece in a greater system as opposed to you earning a place for your own name and legacy. And I, and she mentioned, I think she actually mentions in this book as well, but, you know, she gives up her seat for Dionysus to preserve peace. And she doesn't really appear a lot in mythology. So this is like kind of her defining moment is that act. I also think uh, yielding is specifically something that Percy has trouble with. Yeah. It conflicts with like multiple of his fatal flaws. <laughs> I think the other thesis that I think is the more explicit one that she brings up is the importance of home, which I will probably talk a lot about as we continue, but that feels like the thing in this book to me. So we leave Westport, sadly, and <laughs> Nico, as it turns out, reveals that they didn't have to go to Los Angeles in The Lightning Thief. There's a secret door. <laughs> they go to the underworld in New York to enact Nico's plan which we find out is that basically Luke has become invulnerable because he's gotten the blessing of Achilles. So Achilles in myth, when he was a baby, was dipped in the river Styx by his mother Thetis, who is a goddess, to make him invulnerable except for the spot where she held him. And Nico has found out that that is how Luke has made himself invulnerable as well. And it's a very dangerous, difficult process. And that's also why they need their mother's blessings to do it. So now Percy, in order to be a match for Luke, has to also do it. But uh, when they get into the underworld, Nico quote-unquote tricks Percy, and we get a, a very clear glimpse 
of Percy's wrath, like we talked about in our Titan's Curse episode, <laughs> because he just mm-hmm. immediately goes to revenge. Like in this scene, his first impulse is to lunge at Nico, and then we get lines like, I wanted to tell Mrs. O'Leary to attack Nico, and I wished I had my sword so I could cut his stupid head off. <laughs> and my personal favorite, uh, I resisted the urge to strangle Nico. <laughs> They'd only stop me. I'd have to wait for my revenge. <laughs> Which, like, this was your friend 20 seconds ago, and it's also a child. <laughs> and Nico, like, tries to explain himself that it was just to talk to Hades and that they'll go to the river after. And Percy, it's like the switch has been flipped, and it's very hard for Percy to unflip it. I, I just think this is one of the clearest examples of that potential fatal flaw of his because Nico goes from like his friend Nico who he is going through with the prophecy for who he's been trying to protect for the last two books to immediately like I want that kid dead like (laughs) within like a page like (laughs) Percy's under a lot of stress (laughs) don't make excuses (laughs) for him (laughs) I mean I think that's the thing that like betrayal is really like Percy's that's his no-go. Like, he will not abide betrayal. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because of Luke or if that was something that existed before. I think it makes sense for it to be because of Luke. I'm, like, having trouble imagining him being close enough with anyone to have been betrayed <laughs> before Luke. Yeah. So it could be a Luke trauma thing. But Nico leads Percy back to Hades, and it turns out that Hades plans on keeping Percy locked up for eternity. I made a quick note of this scene because Nico will always fall for a promise. He's actually very trusting like that. There's a part of him that instinctively seems to believe in the best in people. While he's like learned not to trust that instinct, it's still an instinct that I think he has and ends up falling for a lot. Like he over and over while he's arguing with Hades just keeps saying like you promised. Promises are clearly a big thing for Nico because that's also his reaction when he thinks that Percy betrayed him. It's just, it's the promise mm. is, the, is the thing. Yeah. And promise is also a big thing in this book, as we'll see later. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so Percy's thrown in a cell. Nico eventually comes to save him. Percy reacts by tackling him and putting his sword to his throat. Uh, and so Nico leads them out of the prison and back to the river. This is one of the few scenes that I remember from this book. <laughs> But I remember him going into the river as being, like, a very long scene, but it's not. Percy goes in, and the pain is so great that he, like, almost instantly forgets what he has to do. But he finally pictures Annabeth pulling him out of the river, and Annabeth is his anchorage of humanity. And it's interesting because it's also, it's not a conscious choice. Like, he's in so much pain that he doesn't even remember, like, how to save himself. It's just, like, this vision of Annabeth that comes out to save him. Yeah. It's like the the truest manifestation of his mortality. Okay, but after uh, Percy gets out of the river, Hades finds him. And, you know, when Achilles warns Percy that if you go into the river, your weaknesses will increase with your strength. And I think of this scene with Hades being like immediately having one of those vulnerabilities exposed, which is his anger. Because Percy doesn't actually know what sets him off in this scene. He just gets angry and dives straight into a windless fight because of the anger. And like, luckily the river sticks did its job and he's invincible now, but it stays like that for the entire rest of the book. Like his anger just sits barely, like it's, it's hard to even say it's beneath the surface anymore. It's just there. (laughs) 
yeah. it's like a constant throughout the rest of the book like it's in the way that he responds to Hermes in the next scene it's when he hears the mm. city go silent and like pushes Michael Yu out of the way so that he can see <laughs> like it's just a constant rather than an outburst like it usually is and so I think that's kind of the first of those vulnerabilities that we see thanks to the the curse of Achilles it's interesting that it I don't know if it's ever referred to as a blessing I think it's always the curse of Achilles in this book why did they go to Olympus at the, after this it, it's not important. I just wrote down because the description of the book was like a black book with a flower on it, which means the Olympus guard was reading New Moon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like there's something going on on Mount Olympus, and so they decide to go check or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. Okay, I have no idea. I can't find it. <laughs> uh, Percy and all of the warriors who came from camp head up to Mount Olympus. Oh, Hestia gives Percy a vision, and it's the scene that we saw at the end of Luke's diary. I don't know if that's important, but <laughs> it's important for the Percy beginning to understand where Luke came from journey, which we'll talk about later. And immediately after that, Hermes appears in the throne room because he has a message for them. Percy, hot off his streak of yelling at Hades, yells at Hermes. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, finally, Percy, pointing fingers in the right direction. Like, he sits there and yeah. yells at Hermes for abandoning Luke. And I was like, thank you, Percy. So basically, they Luke's army is ascending on Manhattan to attack Olympus because all of the gods are away fighting Typhon in the Midwest. And Percy is like, all right, let's get the defense show on the road. Um, And he basically takes charge in defending Manhattan. And... My next note is, I'm just imagining being an Apollo camper who at this point have no idea that he's got the curse of Achilles, by the way. So just imagine being an Apollo camper. Percy shows up. You've got the Minotaur leading an army of 200 across your bridge. You've called for backup. Percy Jackson shows up and single-handedly kills all of them. Yeah. <laughs> like they're shooting arrows like just to cover him and they're just like, what the actual fuck? <laughs> it's a one-man army. The Apollo cabin is like really going through it recently. <laughs> it's like my favorite. This is going to come up a lot in the next series. But one of my favorite tropes of all time is when like you're at the end of a series and a character who you've been with the whole time has like gone through and gotten like God tier powers and like accolades through the events of the series. And then they meet somebody who's new and they're just like, wait, you did what? <laughs> And it just, like, puts into relief all of the absolutely bananas things the narrative has required of these characters. Yeah. And I mean, like, with the return of the Minotaur and the way that he kills it so effortlessly compared yeah, to book one, you have to be thinking of that. <laughs> um, my first note on this scene was Percy experiences the epic highs and lows of high school football, which is so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's actually a real thought that I paraphrased <laughs> through a Riverdale quote. It's it's all at once you go from Percy at his best destroying everything in his path and then in like a moment everything goes wrong. So mid-battle, um, Annabeth tells Percy that they are overextended and that Percy needs to pull back. But Percy says that he wants to destroy every monster <laughs> and doesn't listen to her. And that extra second ends up ruining them because the Apollo campers aren't given the time to retreat, specifically Michael Yu. And Kronos, along with a larger army, 
is coming and Percy didn't realize until that extra second and so Kronos and I think it's mainly demigods from what I remember Ethan's there Ethan is there of course Percy and Annabeth try to fight them all back while the Apollo cabin is attempting to retreat and in a moment that Percy even has trouble describing um, he says it feels like someone walked over his grave Annabeth is stabbed behind him because she jumped in the way to take a knife that would have hit Percy right in his weak spot in the small of his back, which we haven't mentioned where it is. It's in the small of his back. I mean, it comes up a little bit later, but Annabeth somehow knows in that moment that Percy was going to die if she didn't take the knife or if she didn't stop. It's Ethan who almost stabbed Percy in the back. Of course it's Ethan. Of course. Of course it's Ethan. So we again get Percy and Annabeth's empathy link that's not a real empathy link. I don't know if that's true though, because I wonder if her being his anchor to humanity, like that spot, if it made her like Mm -hmm. subconsciously aware. That'll be interesting when I talk about something later. (laughs) So Annabeth goes down and then Kronos approaches and Michael Yu yells out from behind Percy and he's the only Apollo camper who hasn't made it all the way back. And he tells Percy to break the bridge so that they can separate themselves from Cronus's army, which Percy does. He stabs it with Riptide. Yeah, he stabs it with Riptide and like a water spout comes up in the middle of it and breaks it in half. And when he turns around, he realizes that when he did that, it knocked Michael off of the bridge too. And so he accidentally killed one of his own campers. And this is what I mean when I say that Percy had to experience the epic highs and lows of high school football. High school football meaning the Achilles curse. He has to face that if he can't be wounded or killed, that harm is going to fall on the people around him. And like all of the pain that he would have felt is now an external threat. Like and him having to watch like Annabeth getting hurt trying to protect him and seeing Michael Yu killed by Percy's own actions. It's like the immediate consequence of his new power is to see how the pain that can't be done to him is going to be done to everyone around him yeah and that makes sense too because i think that is in a way how it does play out in the iliad with achilles his greatest pain is being unable to prevent and in fact being the cause of the death of the person he loves mm-hmm. yeah my next note is will Solace's first appearance which isn't for that's a while. my next note too <laughs> Okay, so Percy hears that Annabeth is not doing well back at the Plaza Hotel where they've set up camp. And so he grabs Will Solace and the two of them get on a motorcycle and ride back to the Plaza. I love that the like Aphrodite kids were like, we need a home base, the Plaza. And I'm just assuming it was the Aphrodite kids because that just feels like the mood. Either the Aphrodite kids or the Hermes kids who were like, this is our only chance to go steal all the shit. Yeah. So Percy goes and meets Annabeth out on the terrace, and once they're alone, we get one of my favorite Percybeth scenes. I love this scene. This is the moment where Percy shows Annabeth his weak spot on his back, and it's also in the scene that Annabeth tells Percy that Luke came to visit her before Battle of the Labyrinth and asked her to run away with him. Mm-hmm. And Wild. <laughs> did you just like put your book down and take a minute? I don't even remember reading that for the first time. I feel like I forgot that happened the first three times that I read the book. The timeline, though, I am I mean... Yeah, the timeline makes sense to me. The only thing that's, like, tricky is a lot of people say that the curse of Achilles can't have happened before he went to see Annabeth, but I think he 
He got the curse of Achilles before he went to see Annabeth. And that's why he showed up without a weapon. But she said, I don't know, there's a few interesting pieces of information in here, though, that make me think. Because to me, like, the power of him coming to her completely unarmed, him implicitly trusting her in the way that she implicitly has always sort of trusted him, even though he's done bad things to her. And she keeps saying, like, I could have killed him, you know. And he's, but he looks scared. So it Mm -hmm. feels like it makes way more sense to me that he would have come to Annabeth before doing that. Because, like, he needed his mother's blessing in a way. It probably also, like, I don't know, like, we keep circling Annabeth as kind of like his tether to humanity. So it would make way Mm -hmm. more sense to me if he saw her before. I think also I want to talk about how he, like, the two quotes I wrote down were he looked scared and he wanted to run away like the old days. Kronos would use him like a stepping stone. So it's like at this point, yeah. we also know he's aware that. Yeah, this was a, a big quote that I wrote down because it, it answers our question that we had a couple episodes ago about what Luke thinks comes after all of this. Yeah. Like when he goes ahead with it, does he think that he's going to wake up at the end? And I think this moment kind of confirms that he knows that Kronos will burn away his body. Which is also makes me interested in like the juxtaposition also of him saying like let's run away just like the old days because you know in the old days like what was he running away from versus now what is he trying to run away from to me in a way it's the same thing where he's just come to the realization that he's like repeated this cycle that he wanted to break of like becoming dependent on another god that ultimately is never gonna like give him what Mm -hmm. he wants it shows that he maybe realizes a little bit already that he has made an error in how he's yeah. going about his revolution. Yeah, which has always made me curious about what like mindset he was in when he actually, like, I don't know if he stepped into the coffin or you know, I don't know what that ritual looked like. But when he went to sleep, was he already thinking about fighting back? Or had he convinced himself again that this was going to work out? At this point, I'm wondering if he's thinking about, you know, the warning Achilles gives of like, the increase of strength comes the increase of weakness. So Luke's weakness for the people around him mm. that landed him in this situation in the first place is coming back to get him. Yeah, I'm actually probably going to say more about this like later in this chapter. Okay. <laughs> my next note's on Nico, so. Uh, my next note is also on Nico because Percy, I think in a dream, sees Nico's backstory. Sorry, I was just Googling how does Cassandra get cursed. <laughs> yeah. Though that's, I mean, that's what my big note is on this scene, is about her, rather than Maria. Sorry, Maria. (laughs) Because we see Hades interacting with a young version of the oracle that's been in the attic at camp. What is interesting is that cursed oracles are are a pretty common trope in Greek mythology. We've already seen one in our reread. Poor Hal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And also, Cassandra is the famous oracle in the Iliad who has one of the worst curses of all time, which she's gifted with prophecy, but cursed to never be believed. Hades' curse on the oracle is one of my favorite elements of this series because it fits perfectly into our whole, does a prophecy happen because it's fated to happen or because your actions led to it happening? Mm. Because if Hades hadn't cursed the oracle... There would have been no issue with passing on the oracle to anyone else and may wouldn't have had to go up into the attic and luke wouldn't have grown up the way that he did and then would luke have run away would luke have turned against the gods would any of this be happening and so this whole series wouldn't be happening 
if the gods hadn't punished the oracle for making the prophecy in the first place about this book series. <laughs> she gave the prophecy and then the result was the prophecy happened. Yeah. So after this vision, Percy wakes up and he's invited to basically treat with an emissary of Kronos, who turns out to be Prometheus, who in mythology, Prometheus ends up bringing fire to humanity against Zeus's orders. And as a result, he's punished for it by being chained to a rock and having an eagle come and eat his liver every day. And in mythology, much later, Hercules actually frees him. So he's been free for a bit. But during their conversation, where he basically tells Percy to surrender, Prometheus, when he's warning Percy about how he's definitely going to lose, says, a line that I've been thinking about for days. Prometheus says to Percy, you're refighting the Trojan War here. Patterns repeat themselves in history. They reappear just as monsters do. A great siege, two armies. The only difference is, this time you're defending. You're Troy. And you know what happened to the Trojans, don't you? Oh, Go for God. it. <laughs> okay. First of all, I, I was already kind of clocking a lot of the Iliad similar similarities in this book, as I've kind of mentioned before. But like, here's the, the thing is, there actually aren't that many in this book. It's just kind of Clarice being Achilles, being cast as Achilles. You know, it's not really a great siege. Like the huge piece of the Trojan War was the Great Wall around Troy that was built by the gods. You know, it's not, there, there's no wall in Manhattan, you know, it's kind of an all out guerrilla fight. It, like the tactics aren't <laughs> the same. There aren't that many other echoes either. Like there's no like Amenelaus and Agamemnon. There's no Helen of Troy starting this war. The parallels very only go like skin deep here. But then I was thinking about it. I have now compared Luke to Achilles a couple times on this podcast because I think a lot mm -hmm. of what they say and how they talk about the world matches up. There is a very obvious parallel. You know, he has the curse of Achilles. So does Percy. But Percy has definitely not been cast as Achilles in this. No. Book. But I was also thinking about how a lot of people think the Iliad tells the story of the Trojan War. But it, it begins in the ninth year of a 10-year siege. And it's a series of vignettes showing kind of like these slices of life of these conflicts that are going on both in the Greek camp and in the Trojan camp. The Iliad is really not about a war. At least it's not about a war between the Greeks and the Trojans. Like not even the Greeks and the Trojans. Like there are multiple scenes throughout the Iliad where they're battling against each other and they'll be equally matched in single combat and they'll throw down their arms and be like, yo, you're awesome. Let's be friends. And they kind of make a pact of friendship and be like, I'll host you if you come if you come to Greece, I'll your I'm your host and vice versa. Like in the middle of a war on the battlefield. And then the Iliad ends after Achilles has killed Hector, the Trojan golden boy prince, who honestly is the least problematic of all of the characters. <laughs> and he's got some hubris, but who doesn't? You know, he's the greatest warrior in Troy. Achilles, though, kills him because Hector kind of unknowingly killed Patroclus, Achilles' lover. The Iliad ends basically after Achilles has killed Hector with Hector's father sneaking into the uh, Greek camp and basically begging Achilles to return his son's body so he can bury him. The journey of the Iliad is Achilles finally like letting go of that anger and giving the body of Hector back to his father to bury. That's how it ends. That's the point. There's no good guys or bad guys. So I don't think 
The Last Olympian is a true parallel of the Iliad. But what's funny is that this series as a whole actually parallels the Iliad a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even the timeline works out, which blew my mind. For example, you know, again, if we're casting Luke as Achilles here, which I am, you know, he's been at camp for five years and now it's been four years. We're again in the ninth year of like Luke's defining changing moment being if he if that's when he has arrived at camp. And what's also really interesting is the war itself actually begins with Menelaus sacrificing his daughter um, Iphigenia. And that had me thinking about how, if you think about it this way, like Zeus sacrificing his daughter Thalia, and that kind of also being a really major turning point in Luke's life. Like I said, the Iliad begins with divine wrath of Achilles. And I think reading this series, thinking about it beginning with the divine wrath of Luke, kind of all lines up. And you've also got a lot of these elements that also line up. For example, Diomedes and Odysseus kind of have a lot of buddy cop moments where they just go on a bunch of side quests through the Iliad. And I would definitely cast Annabeth as Odysseus and Perseus Diomedes. (laughs) I'm so glad that we're on the exact same page right now. (laughs) My notes right now, because I knew you were going to go into the Iliad, are literally, the first line is, could it be that the whole series is the Iliad rather than Did just this book? Did you anticipate? And then it's just an entire <laughs> list of things where, with me trying to figure out how it is the Iliad. And then at the end, it's me trying to figure out which one's Percy and saying that it's Diomedes. <laughs> oh, my God. Because he's known for being clever. Yeah. And like fighting against the gods, specifically wounding Ares. Yeah, he does wound Ares. Collaborating with Odysseus. Um, uh-huh. my, but my my main frame of reference for Diomedes doesn't come from the Iliad. It comes from Dante's Inferno, mm. where he and Odysseus are in the eighth circle of hell <laughs> <laughs> for all the tricks and deception throughout their lives. <laughs> I was like, I, she's going to have something big and I need something to respond with. And I just came up with the exact same thought that you did. Like all of the same bullet points. <laughs> The other thing that's interesting, though, about the Iliad is that, you know, there's all of the the whole time it's the mortals fighting for their legacies. And then paralleled with them are all of these scenes with the gods where they're all just engaged in the pettiest squabbles. And that is what's shaping the war more, way more than anything the mortals will ever do. It's like very clear that the mortals are kind of evenly matched and it's the whims of the gods that really change everything. And it's because it's basically all of these mortals fighting for a legacy in a world where they know they're never they're not going to live long they're not going to last you know that's the only way they can really continue on forever in a way achieve their own version of immortality really the the iliad is a war between the mortals and the gods there are so many times in the iliad where the mortals are about to decide one way or the other the end of the war and every single time the gods are the ones that are that they intervene and they delay the inevitable or they put off the inevitable. They completely, they switch sides all of the time. Mm -hmm. They take favor in a very fickle way where at one point they're fighting for one side and then one of their children's on the other side and someone kills their child and they're like, ugh. Don't they even have a moment in the Iliad where the gods make a pact not to interfere and then end up breaking it? Oh yeah. (laughs) Immediately. Immediately. The other thing about this scene is something that I have mentioned to you before. We talked about it once on the train when we were trying to figure out what stories are paralleled in each of the books. Mm. And I said that I thought, because I don't, I didn't know that much about the Iliad. I said that the last book was paralleling the creation of the world and mankind. 
And I think that this scene is where that is solidified with the introduction of Prometheus and Pandora's jar. Yeah. We also, like, throughout the book, we've got the return of a bunch of the Titans, like Hyperion and Krios. Obviously, Kronos, we've got Typhon. And just, like, the the concept of the war between the gods and the Titans replaying itself, we're bringing us back to the creation of, of the world. And the fact that Luke's whole thing is that we're going to recreate the world, mm-hmm. it feels right for us to be setting up all of it again. I would agree with that interpretation, I think. Then after this... Percy goes to sleep and has a dream of Kronos mm. that is very uh, special to me. <laughs> I wrote down no notes on this. It's it's very special to me because this is the scene where Ethan comes back and talks to Kronos. Mm. And Kronos mm. is basically trying to get Ethan to remember where he almost stabbed Percy because Kronos assumes that that's why Annabeth jumped in the way because Annabeth must have known his weak spot. And then as he's talking to him he has like another one of those glitches where luke's voice comes out for a second and ethan responds with he's still fighting you isn't he and i had two thoughts about this one is that that means that luke has been fighting for control over his own body for a while now but the the bigger thing that's connected to this luke also only wakes up when ethan is told to try and remember percy's weak spot I think that this is because at this point, Luke knows that his only chance of getting out of this is Percy. If Ethan remembers where Percy's weak spot is, that's dangerous because he needs Percy alive. I I think that's also because Kronos falters at the very beginning when he sees Percy and here when Percy comes up. Mm -hmm. And so I was keeping track of every time that that happened to figure out like what are the moments where Luke is fighting so hard that he actually breaks out for a second. Yeah, we'll check back in in a moment. Dionysus speaks to Percy in like a weird vision situation. Yeah, Percy out of nowhere has a vision of Mr. D who was thrown out of the fight with Typhon. Mm -hmm. We haven't mentioned the gods are crossing the US right now. (laughs) Mr. D's basically been like put out of commission and he appears to Percy in a vision at like some random dude's birthday party in a super lame bar. He's apparently there. His spirit is there wherever there is a party. Yeah. This scene was weird. (laughs) It's a weird scene. He says, as a way to up the stakes, basically that if the gods fall, all of the things created by and tied to Western civilization will also just kind of disappear. But then he lists them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He says, art, law, wine tasting, music, video games, silk shirts, black velvet paintings, all gone, basically. I don't think there's one thing on that list that I would call Western. <laughs> Again, it's very predicated on the assumption that all civilization began in Greece, which is just plainly not true. I felt like we had been developing <laughs> past that idea after the lightning yeah. thief, and so this felt like such a step backwards. I can't believe it's silk shirts. Like, I know it's like something Dionysus like specifically says he likes, but bro, silk? Silk? He could have said any fabric. (laughs) But the other thing about this scene that was weird to me, I felt like maybe it was just me already knowing how this series goes, but I felt like it was already sort of implied that Western civilization would be done with if they lost. Yeah. And so this didn't up the stakes for me. And then everything that he lists, like, oh, Typhon's coming across America, like, Ed... And we're we're outnumbered, like all this stuff. I was like, we already know all of this. Like, like what's the purpose of this scene? I think it's like 
to remind the kids back home of the stakes, maybe. I it's, If that was the case, it's too late <laughs> in the book to be doing that. Yeah. And I, I thought the way that it worked for me was that it was it was twofold. It was by bringing in Mr. D who's saying all these things. And Percy's really like clearly annoyed at him throughout this entire scene. Like everything he says just makes Percy more annoyed at him. And he just keeps saying like, can I go now? Like I, everything you're saying, I already know this. Like let me out. <laughs> and so I thought putting it back to back against the Prometheus scene, it helped to show like another level of how distant the gods can be in comparison to someone like Prometheus who sat with Percy and mm-hmm. had a real conversation with him instead of just saying things at him that he already knows and that are unhelpful. Yeah. But the other thing that was weird about this scene to me was that it was coming from Mr. D who felt like he had as a person evolved past this kind of conversation. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of like his Titan's curse stuff to Percy. Even that felt like more of a person than this does, which made sense to me because he is completely at this point the part of him that represents something. Like he's not even Dionysus, the person. He's the part that specifically is conjured when someone parties. Yeah. And so like, of course, he's kind of distant while he's trying to piece himself back together. And so like the part of him that we know best is in a pile of rubble somewhere. And so we're stuck with this version of him that was just like conjured by the West and is like a complete manifestation of something, of an idea rather than like a, a person. And so that was how I explained it to myself. <laughs> this is how I justified this scene to me. It's not what it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. But we do have a moment in the scene where it's almost like the real Mr. D kind of breaks through where he, st- he starts to piece himself back together because he asks about his son. Yeah. And that's like the only real moment that I felt in this scene. That was the only like not out of touch moment <laughs> that Mr. D had. Okay, so we get to the Draken scene, and I'm not going to lie, I when I was thinking about the Iliad, I realized where this was going, but I completely forgot about the Clarice and like, Selena situation, and I you did. I completely <laughs> forgot about this. I hit like the midway point of the book where we hadn't seen like Clarice for a while, and Selena goes off, and then it was when Selena, like, it, it wasn't even when she goes off, she like goes off. And then I was thinking about all this Iliad stuff. And then I had this moment where I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and I just had a whole thing where I was like, Rick, per my last thing about in Titan's Curse, where I believe I said something about how Rick really just writes these beautiful queer women and doesn't realize it and denies he does it on purpose. And yet cast Selena and Clarice as Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad, the only part he actually recreates in his book that's supposed to mirror the Iliad. But it also, it's like, it almost feels intentional because its it's got the Ares-Hephaestus-Aphrodite dynamic. Yeah! And so it's like, did he know? <laughs> we think Clarice has returned. It's taken the forces, all of the Ares campers that they've been missing the whole fight because, you know, they needed those reinforcements. And it turns out it was Selena who stole Clarice's armor. She gets killed by the dragon. And then Clarice shows up immediately afterwards, sees that her friend has died, has a meltdown per Achilles, and goes mm-hmm. and challenges this dragon, kills it, and then hooks it up to her chariot and drives in circles around Fifth Avenue. What Achilles does when he kills Hector is he ties his legs to the back of his chariot and goes around the walls of Troy three times. 
it's a weird replay of it because it's not fully like beat for beat what happens but the important thing is rick has confirmed that selena and clarice are gay they are selena and clarice are like my everything i've i have made multiple playlists for them i've drawn so much art of them are they your otp in this series yeah i like Mm -hmm. percy and beth listen but he put something in them in this Mm. one book the only book where they interact but also important to note that it's watching selena die and listening to her explain why she worked for luke that makes annabeth start to realize who luke is now i made the exact same note why are we the same person (laughs) (laughs) which is paired with percy like throughout the book beginning to understand who luke was then so they're both like fully putting the picture together over the course of these couple chapters and it's, I think it's specifically the manipulation and the blackmail yeah. that gets Annabeth. Yeah. It's like Annabeth can't really see it when it's happening to her, but when it's happening to other people, she sees it. And her anger in this upcoming scene <laughs> so good. This upcoming scene, well, there are some lines. Now I read it and I'm like, I bet Phoebe is going to lose her mind reading this. <laughs> like what? Well, the one that really came to mind was the next scene with Kronos where Luke slips through. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good one this on the mm. show you're gonna be sobbing I'm, literally i had the exact same thought while reading it i was like when i see this in the show i'm going to lose it you filled his head with empty promises you said the gods cared about me oh the acting charlie's gonna bring it i see i see the potential in the scene for an incredible acting moment what sets them off the change in this one it's Chiron. it's arguing with Chiron about I think Chiron calls him, like, he says that Luke was, like, promising young hero and that Cronus corrupted him. And there's a really interesting dynamic as well where it's, like, Chiron talking to his father who is in the body mm-hmm. of somebody, like, he kind of raised. And then likewise also, like, Luke and Annabeth, again, where, like, Luke kind of helped raise Annabeth. Then Annabeth stabs Luke or tries to stab him. Mm-hmm. And he's shocked. I thought the timing was he's just yelled at Chiron for the gods being terrible parents and like saying they failed. And then the girl he raised turns around saying how much she hates him. Like she's perpetuating that same hatred finally. Mm -hmm. For what he did. Yeah. The thing about when she attacks him and tries to stab him, she gets so close to his actual weak spot. She goes between the straps of his armor and gets him in the chest by his collarbone, which is just like uncomfortably close if she got him on the same side. And this is what you said earlier about her knowing Percy's weak spot, like instinctually because she was his tether. She was also Luke's tether and she also- She ate the Nakamura's Luke. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But like, even if that's not the reason, it's not because she's the tether and it's just, you know, she also has that same weird, like fake empathy link with Luke, the same thing that she has with Percy. So either way, there's like an instinctual part of her that happens to go for like almost exactly where his weak spot is. It's, It's the same instinct that made her protect Percy is the same thing that almost makes her kill Luke. Mm. And then we get- Annabeth, Thalia, Grover, and Percy all head for the elevators. There's also a really funny throwaway line where, like, there's something really heavy and Percy remarks, it would have taken several Cyclops to move. Here's the thing, okay? So a lot of the super ancient Bronze Age, like, Mycenaean Greek architecture is, like, the walls are called Cyclopean walls. 
because the ancient Greeks thought the stones were so big, only Cyclops could have moved them. Hmm. So I was like, Rick, is that a cheeky archaeology reference? (laughs) (laughs) Or if that was an accident, that's wild. The thing that falls, though, is I think a statue of Hera, and it falls on Thalia. (laughs) Yeah, and Annabeth's like, ah, that's that's the curse of Hera. Yeah, I was like, right before this scene, having like one last insult from the gods as she like tries to kill Annabeth. She probably didn't really try to kill Annabeth, but it doesn't matter because she sees it as that, we see it as that. But like right before saving the gods, we get like one last insult. And then we get an iconic scene. I was actually trying to figure out, and I didn't, I should have gone back, but how much this fight parallels Ethan and Percy's fight in the arena. Hmm. Because Luke uses the disarming technique on Percy. Yep. And Ethan's there. Yeah. We need to talk about Ethan in this scene. But here's the thing, okay? I think I said this in our last episode where I have a very strong memory of like an iconic thing Ethan did when I was a kid. And I it was a lasting impression. And every ki- every book we've read, everything we've seen with him in it, I keep being like, not yet, not yet. And I read this book and I'm like, I don't know what the moment was. For me, Ethan's most iconic moment is when Kronos tells him to stab Percy and his eyes immediately go down to yeah. Percy's like midsection and you're like, he oh, he figured it out. <laughs> he knows. He knows. Looking back, I think it's Battle of the Labyrinth, Ethan, is was what inspired my adoration because the reversal of Percy like sparing him and then him being the final soul for Kronos. I think it's such a good trope reversal, you know, where like normally in like the YA middle grade, like there's a change of heart when the hero spares the life of another. And this one, Ethan's like double down. <laughs> right. You kind of almost expect Ethan to like join the team for a little bit. We do finally get a little more of like what he's looking for. And he does say something that's really interesting, especially when taken in concert with what you were talking about with fate which is um a while back ethan says all i want is respect jackson the gods never gave me that nemesis stands for balance and he basically talks about how he gave his mother his eye and in return she gave him the ability to tip the balance of power and in doing so bring the minor gods respect Mm -hmm. there are several times in this story where ethan can tip the balance And I wonder if part of why he knows where Percy's weak spot is is because of the hand of his mom guiding him. Like, that is a moment he could have tipped the balance by killing Percy. Likewise, in this last scene, twice he could tip the balance. And I wonder how many other times, like, he does have that chance to tip the balance and doesn't. Because what I was left with thinking after the events of this book was, how did he do it? Because I don't know if his promise from his mom was ever fulfilled. Unless it was what happened at the end of Battle of the Labyrinth. And like, and if he hadn't done that, then this whole scenario wouldn't have played out this way. And Percy wouldn't have asked the gods for their gift at mm. the end. So like in that way, yes. But Ethan, I think I mentioned it in our last book, that Ethan to me is like just totally a symbolic device. Like, Oh, yeah. Like, he's a he's a fun character. I love him as a character. But to me, it's like everything that Ethan symbolizes that's important. Ethan, to me, symbolizes the vengeful and, like, wrathful, destructive part of Percy that Percy has to face one-on-one. Partially because 
Well, one is that the, that one line in The Lightning Thief when Grover says that he thinks Percy might be the son of Nemesis because he knows him. He knows his friend and knows that that's a possibility. But also it's just the way that Ethan, in seeking balance, ends up getting lost in the destructive part of it and the revenge part. And that in this scene, what gets through to Ethan is Percy saying don't seek destruction, seek balance. And mm -hmm. like it's something that I think Percy needs to hear specifically now before facing Kronos, like before trying to kill Luke. Like if he, if that wasn't a thought that he was having right before trying to fight Kronos, he might not have handed the knife over because he'd still be in that like destruction mode. Mm. So it's like, don't just destroy Kronos, find balance. So to me, Ethan is that part of Percy that he has to calm and like understand that the revenge that he's seeking is really just seeking balance and that there are two sides to this. Like realizing that mm -hmm. is what Percy needs to do. And I think like we talked a little bit about how Ethan is mimicking Luke too a lot of the time. So he could have symbolized that thing for Luke also. So in this moment when Ethan realizes that he needs to stop seeking destruction and seek balance, Kronos kills him like in that moment because he realizes mm -hmm. that that realization that you want balance and not violence is a dangerous realization for Luke to have because that's the only thing that's keeping Luke there because that's what Kronos has kind of taught him. Kronos has been feeding into the violent side of that and if Luke also has that realization like Percy is having then he will lose him completely. Basically to me Ethan is a symbol of of that of like that wrath that we've been talking about and that i think an essential moment is when percy gets through to him because he's yeah. also getting through to that part of himself i think that moment also it's interesting you use the word wrath because as i mentioned the iliad opens on achilles's wrath and closes on him essentially being able to let it go yeah so Percy fights Kronos. At one point gets his like head smashed against a, a throne. Um, and Annabeth steps in. And she takes on Kronos just as well as Percy can, even without the curse of Achilles. Because she's incredible. Strongest demigod. <laughs> mm-hmm. And with a knife. Like, I... I know. She's trying to get him to understand the prophecy. Yeah. She says, family, Luke, you promised. Well, what breaks through is really... It's like two things. It's one, her, her bringing up the family but it's also that Kronos hits her that when he breaks through and sees that she's bleeding he's like oh my god and is like fully awake and then he's basically able to wrestle down Kronos in a way where he's like I've got him pinned it's so swan song of him <laughs> <laughs> did you know that this book came out the same year as season five of Supernatural <laughs> <laughs> the universe just said we want phoebe to be in pain specifically <laughs> okay this is where i kind of want to close the loop on my achilles thoughts as well because as i mentioned there's this decision to give hector's body back and that's sort of the end of the iliad what breaks through to achilles is when priam comes up to him priam is hector's father the king of troy he's an older he's an elderly man and he comes up to achilles and he says, think about your father. Like, I am in your father's place if you don't come home. Like, think about him. You know, how would he feel? 
if whoever killed you refused to give your body back to properly bury like take pity on me as a father by thinking of your own what i ended up settling on thinking through all of this because there's a lot of differences and it's not really clear cut was that ultimately also i do think this book actually subverts a lot of the way myths go because the iliad ends with really just ends with Achilles letting go of his anger, his grief and his fury, his grief over like the glorious, like the, the, the life he could have had and, you know, his anger at those that stand in the way of him and that. And I think ultimately that is what Luke does because when Annabeth pleads with him and tells him about his broken promise, she is also like reminding him of how he was supposed, he took on the role of like basically father to her and instead betrayed her, which feels reminiscent in a reversed way of Priam's pleading with Achilles to think of his own father. Instead, she's kind of there like, think about me, the you're the, like, think of me, the person you raised. And mm-hmm. he actually listens, which is also what Achilles does. I think that that works uh, for me. (laughs) It works for me because like the way that I was trying to think of it was like almost like a pleading with Kronos to like let me have him back. Mm. But the idea of it actually being the familial relationship that she's trying to connect with actually makes that interpretation of it work better. Because a journey that we haven't gotten to see Luke go through ourselves but know that Luke has gone through throughout this book and throughout at least Battle of the Labyrinth is that realization of like what are you protecting at the end of the day or it like realizing what it is that you are fighting for and what is your home Mm. you know we know that Percy kind of guesses it but he says it with such certainty that we kind of have to believe him when Luke went into the River Styx, he had a vision of Thalia and Annabeth while trying to tie himself to the mortal world. And like having to see a young Annabeth and how much you want to protect her back then. And then climbing out of the river with that reminder of why he started fighting in the first place. And like, hey, he goes into Battle of the Labyrinth thinking about that. That's what's crazy to me. And that's why it also kind of works for me if he did go into the sticks before going to see Annabeth. It makes sense that he would get out of the river and then be like, I need to go see Annabeth. <laughs> Mm. And so I think the idea of like what exactly am I protecting has probably been closer to the front of Luke's mind for at least the last book or two. And so then having Annabeth reach out at the end and try to bring him home makes sense. Because I mean, I don't want to get into all this now, but like that's kind of what this whole book is about is like realizing that your home is what you're supposed to be protecting and what is your home. Because like... Mm -hmm. Like an easy one is like Poseidon or Hades. They were protecting their personal spaces and their personal wants without realizing it was at the cost of their home and their family. And then they come back at the end to protect Olympus because that's their that's their family. Or like Clarice, like it wasn't about protecting even camp. It wasn't about protecting her pride. For her, it's like her home is the people she cares about, specifically Selena at the end. And a realization that Annabeth has to go through is like, you know, with the chapter Annabeth tries to swim home, we know that the home that she's been seeking is like this peace with Luke. That's the home that she thinks that she's trying to return to, but it's not a home for her. It's like, an, it's just an, an idealized version of home that she wants. But like what she actually has is like Percy and 
Thalia and Grover and Chiron. Like, it's camp now. And mm-hmm. so throughout this book, she's kind of had to realize that, that it's not Luke anymore. And I think for Percy, it's kind of like, I mean, he's never been thinking, oh, I need to protect the gods, but really reminding him that what it's for is their children. Look at the gods, see what they are, and remember that it's for their kids that you're fighting. Well, in a literal sense, he's protecting his city, though, so. Yeah, which is his house. (laughs) That's his house. He lives there. (laughs) He's Hector guarding the walls of Troy, you know, aka the bridges of New York City. Yeah, but there's something about Luke when he goes for his sword his hand burns in the hearth and that the whole fight is taking place around the hearth. (laughs) That's what it's all about. And then Percy is faced with his choice, the choice. And this kind of ties into what you were saying about how this book subverts a lot of the Greek tropes. Mm. Because I think this choice for Percy is kind of several things at once that are hard for him. He has to trust Luke, first of all. I mean, that's the hard, one of the hardest parts of this. (laughs) We know, like we've talked about, once you lose Percy's trust, once you betray him, like that betrayal, is, it's forever. You've, you've lost it completely. And so actually getting through that and like getting through some of that wrath and being able to trust Luke for a second is a, a big move for him. And then he has to trust in Anna's relationship with Luke in that moment. Like he has to trust that yeah. their connection is going to be enough to keep Luke present and like admit that the, the what they have is strong enough for him to be able to put all of his faith in Luke right there. Like this relationship that he's been denying and brushing off for like the entire series. He has to put his all into trusting that connection. I wonder if part of the reason why Luke is able to hold Kronos is because it is by Hestia's fire and he and Annabeth have both converged there and like Annabeth is his home. So is Thalia. Mm-hmm. They're all there. <laughs> this is a, a good point. It was just that you saying that Thalia was there. I was like, <laughs> she's outside underneath rubble. They had to pin her down with a statue so she wouldn't try to kill Luke. It's fine. Oh, she would have. <laughs> but he has to trust in their connection. And we've talked a lot about agency and fighting fate. And in this moment, you can see the prophecy line up and it would be so easy to fight it. But Percy has to give up his agency kind of completely, mm-hmm. both by being like, okay, I'm going to hand this knife over to Luke and be weaponless and powerless in front of him. But also by being like, okay, this is the choice and I see it right now. I see that I'm about to play into the prophecy and he just does it. Like he actively, I think this is probably the first time that he's seen the prophecy line itself up in front of him. It's not like in retrospect, Mm -hmm. I realize this is how the prophecy played out. It's like he sees it and goes for it. And it's interesting that what's been building, we've been talking about that kind of the whole series has been building to is the Rachel Elizabeth Dare line of Percy, you're not the hero. Yes, exactly. So many of the Greek heroes are like always fighting their fate or like seeking to be, you know, and it's just at the end, it's so it's like anticlimactic in the best way possible, (laughs) where he just hands over the knife and lets everything happen in front of him. And what I also love about this scene is that Luke immediately knows what the plan is. Like he and Annabeth, they get it like they're they're on the same page. And... It made me wonder when Luke figured it out, if he figured it out because Annabeth was trying to get through to him or if he already knew it. Like, I want to know when this became part of Luke's plan. You know, I didn't think about this, but one thing to mention is that what Annabeth says when she's trying to convince him is, you promised to Luke. And I was confused by this at first, and then I'm realizing she's trying to tell him the cursed blade is her knife. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the hinge piece of information. 
Yeah. So I think in that moment, he probably hears that and is like, oh, that's what I've been. Because he's probably been thinking like the Cursed Blade is probably like he's thinking the same thing Percy's thinking. It's either Riptide or it's Backbiter. I forgot they all carry cursed blades. Yeah, <laughs> to throw you off. It's like the whole time we've been debating if it's Anaclusmos or if it's Backbiter, but it's the secret third option. Yep. And so I think in that moment is when he like realizes what the full prophecy is about to be. But I think he mm. probably was fighting back, knowing what he had to do when he finally broke through. Which is interesting because it's like, no matter what, he was going to die at the end and he knew that. And so it's still him trying to finish what he started. Because, I mean, at this point, he's figured out that what Cronus is going to do with the world isn't what he actually wanted to do with the world. It makes me think about Hal also. Because I remember in our Luke's Diary episode, I asked the question of what does Luke think the sacrifice is going to be? And what I was alluding to there was I thought that in Luke's brain, he could think the sacrifice is him giving himself over to Kronos. And then at some point, I think that changed. And it's interesting that it's Hal that gives him the knife as well, where it all kind of comes back. And I can see how that reminder of the knife also might remind him of the sacrifice he's supposed to make. Mm -hmm. And in the end, uh, well, I have, I one, have one thing. <laughs> you have one complaint? I think I know what it is. <laughs> when he says to Annabeth, did you love me? Yeah. Yep. Gross! <laughs> This is the thing is that like I have never read that line as like romantic. No, no, no. I didn't read it that way either until Annaweth responds, no, yeah. I didn't, just like a brother. So here's the thing. I'm sure that Rick intended it that way, but I think that Annabeth interpreted it that way, but that isn't how Luke meant it when I read it. Mm. To me, it's like he's asking if despite everything, do I, do I still have something here? Because he, like I said, he was fighting to get back to that family at the end, that realization that his he needed to get back home. And like, mm -hmm. now that he's home, he's like, okay. Have I thrown it all away? I, or is yeah. there still something here? Yeah. And it's like, she, she tells it to him. She's like, you messed it up, actually. <laughs> like, no, I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and it's your fault. But I think like, he probably could have phrased it better so that Annabeth wouldn't take it that way. <laughs> but after that, as he dies, he, in my mind, secures his legacy. Like, it's the very last thing that he does is grab Percy mm -hmm. and tells him, do not let this happen again. And Percy promises. And so he is able to ensure a legacy, even if that's not totally what he was, like, intending to do in that moment. I don't think he was thinking of himself right there. Mm. But intentionally or unintentionally, he did secure his legacy because that's exactly what Percy goes on to do is make sure it doesn't happen again. Or try to make sure it doesn't happen yeah. again. By putting a stop to it all, he becomes the hero and gets the glory that he's been craving. Not because of anything that he did up to this point. Those traits that made them like the old heroes. Like all that wrath and anger and glory seeking that we've been comparing them, using to compare them to the old heroes. Mm -hmm. When they let it all go, Percy achieves like hero of Olympus status and Luke becomes the hero of the prophecy. It's, it's the subversion also of the like... American hero because all he has to do is do nothing like he has to put the knife down and just like let it happen yeah throughout this story we see subversions of like you know for example there's the Perseus story the Theseus story there's the Iliad there's a whole bunch of little myths all of whom get their endings completely subverted throughout this story and I probably didn't even catch all of them but well the sad one is that they didn't save Princess Andromeda <laughs> 
<laughs> what if Perseus just went and blew up Princess Andromeda? <laughs> Everyone is asking the big questions here. One of the smaller ones that I think is really interesting is that there's a moment of tragedy in the Iliad, which is Helen's brothers are Castor and Pollux. And there's a scene where she's looking out over the battlements and she's looking for her brothers who are great warriors. And she's like, where are they? Oh, they must have like not come or something, but they didn't come to like take me back. And there's a line that says basically what she didn't know is that they're already dead. Hmm. So I think Percy keeping a promise to Dionysus and making sure at least one of his sons makes it out alive is like already the beginning of a subversion. Likewise, they break the curse on the oracle. There's no longer a cursed oracle. And like cursed oracles are like a big thing in the ancient world. So the fact that they're able to like successfully break that and continue a healthier cycle with Rachel at the end. Another one is uh, him rejecting immortality, which is what is offered to Hercules at the end of his quest. He doesn't open Pandora's box. That's another big one. Like there's, He doesn't succumb to the folly. And then I think the one that emblemizes it for me as well is that there's a scene that we talked about a bit in our Titan's Curse episode where Dionysus asks Percy not to be like Theseus. And there's a moment when he's talking to his mom in this book where he promises her that he'll light the Empire State Building in a signal to let her know everything's okay. And he does. Like, he breaks again that cycle of grief that plagues all, like, there's so many, like, almost every of the major myths that we've kind of compared them all to get subverted in this book. That's what it's all about, trying to break the cycles. (laughs) Unfortunately, there are two more series. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So when they're taking away Luke's body... We have the moment that I was alluding to in our first episode. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Okay, so funny story. I was reading this scene, right? And it's like the first sentence. They say something kind of vague. And I was like, oh, so I wasn't being that dumb in our first episode. And then they keep going. And I was like, oh, no, they literally just say the answer to the question. And I. <laughs> yeah, so the fates pull out Luke's thread which is the same thread that percy saw cut in chapter two of the lightning thief and this is where i can finally finish that thought from our first episode (laughs) because this is what i was talking about is that luke's thread is not cut until percy is on the bus on his way back home meaning at the very least luke's death was not set in stone like was not faded until Percy was on the Greyhound, which kind of conflicts with like 10 different things in this book. But (laughs) like I said, my theory is that in that moment in The Lightning Thief, when Percy asks Grover what Grover's protecting him from, that's him suddenly understanding and accepting that there is something else going on in the world. And so he has to go to camp then. And so he has to meet Luke before Luke leaves camp. And now Mm. Luke's fate is set in stone. I don't think that this entire scene was like faded faded like i think that percy's choice still mattered but one way or another luke was going to die in this moment either because chronos burned his body away or he was going to kill himself like he does here that was decided when it was decided that percy was going to camp and then percy only has that vision of what his life is going to look like and like the fates say like it is done after luke is dead which I thought was interesting. Like, almost like the fates had no plan for him until this happened. 
So, like, it really was up in the air. Like, I don't think any of this was completely faded. Mm-hmm. But now Percy's Percy's death is now tied down. <laughs> it's like, great, you saved the day. Now we know when you die. There's, like, a couple little things here in the celebration. Like, the biggest one is that Percy is offered immortality and godhood and gives it up. And so Percy forces the gods to swear on the river sticks that they're going to stop abandoning their children be active parents for once <laughs> mm-hmm. he also I, I have to admire him here he gives them time and he gives them measurable and time-based goals <laughs> and he's so like it's so i keep saying this it's so unfortunate there are two more seasons there are two more series because he's so hopeful at the end of this <laughs> he's like I, I've fixed it. The gods are going to listen to me, I'm sure. <laughs> well, the Iliad ends with the sack of Troy, and then there's the Odyssey and all that fun stuff, but someone escapes Troy to found a, a new city called Rome. <laughs> yeah, Aeneas is a Trojan soldier who escapes and goes to assume his destiny and found Rome. So, yes, things are resolved, but also we've got a sequel. Reading this book when you know the next 10 books it's so upsetting (laughs) speaking of upsetting let's talk about this scene with hermes Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was trying to make notes on like i said like this is a weird moment because like the prophecy is still ambiguous it's weird to act like hermes knew exactly how it was gonna go when no one knew exactly how it was gonna go it also it's trying to be too neat it's like oh yeah he knew the whole time that if he did anything then it would ruin the prophecy and it's it's like like just support your kid like I, I was like Percy there's no reason to be like I'm sorry like what are you apologizing for um so I was going through the scene being like Percy's just saying things at this point like oh I'm sure Luke loved you in the end when he said that I was like oh he's just saying things like no he did not Luke did not love you at the end <laughs> this is the only way I can make sense of the scene now that I'm thinking about it is um going off what you just said which is, uh, this is all just Percy projecting all of his feelings about Poseidon onto Hermes. The only way this makes sense of its projection, where he's like, oh, okay, you stayed, you staying away was actually you doing what was best. So yeah, I think that reads really as Percy kind of making peace with Poseidon by proxy. Because otherwise it just feels like it's, it's a lame walk back of like everything we've learned. Yeah. Don't hate your parents for abandoning you. They have their reasons. <laughs> And my last note on this scene is Percy's conversation with Athena, because she says the most important line in this book. I once warned you, Percy Jackson, that to save a friend, you would destroy the world. Perhaps I was mistaken. And I was like, oh, so you're saying that when you said that was his fatal flaw, maybe you were wrong? Maybe we shouldn't listen to you when you say that? Maybe I was right and I wasn't invoking your wrath in episode one? (laughs) It gave me a boost. I was like... Yeah, I'm going to spend the rest of this series trying to figure out what Percy's actual fatal flaw is because now I have the person who said what his fatal flaw was saying. Maybe I was wrong. (laughs) Do you think she'll still try to kill us? No, I'm listening to her. (laughs) I'm literally telling her that she's right right here in the book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then we got Rachel's first prophecy. Oh, yeah. Something about seven birds. (laughs) For those listening at home, that was an Adventure Zone reference. They know that. They're podcast listeners. Well, I mean, all that we have to talk about is uh, what bead we want to give this one. Because I think, here's the thing, I think what they choose here is appropriate. The names of the dead. I think the Empire State Building as a symbol in the middle is like fine, I guess. I would have put like a little hearth there. But I like having the names of all the people who died circling it. 
I'm torn. I would either pick Annabeth's knife for this one or Ethan's eye patch. Mm. Justice for Ethan Nakamura. Yeah. I once, uh, one of the first fan fictions that I ever wrote was about Ethan coming back. Did it start with him staring off at all the characters happily and making an end of Supernatural season five reference? (laughs) Just pans out. Yeah. Ethan under the lamppost. Like, I love the scene at the end of this book where Dean goes back to Lisa. Thank you all for listening. Next up, we're doing our Q&A slash series wrap up where we're going to touch on all of the stuff we forgot to follow up on and any of the questions or analyses you want to send in. So make sure to send those in to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with us at pjopod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And it'd be best to do that by, I think we said Thursday, the 9th. Yeah, and um, I plan on putting all of those time lapses I keep saying are on YouTube but aren't up once we've you know? finished the series. I'll put them up as like their own little thing. But eventually, those will be on my YouTube channel at Fojoko, P-H-O-J-O-C-O. I think that's it. We made it. We, we did, did it. it. My God, Phoebe. This is two hours, and then there was another hour and a half, and then how long did we record the first time? <laughs> Yeah, okay. Bye, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.